This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. It's Monday. We've been off for a week, so my arm's a little rusty. Actually, I did I did this workout today. I'm not sure I can I can even uh, lift my arm above my head. Look at this. Uh, Raising a flower pot. It, it is. It looks like a flower pot. It's so cool. Hey, uh, let's raise our mugs because you know what happened during the week we were off? People protected us. Yes. Our soldiers protected us. And we're super. Hey, uh, Alan, Corey, you're here like a day early, dude. Your show doesn't launch till tomorrow. What are you doing here? Well, I'm hoping to talk real estate. I, I try to weasel into every conversation and change it to real estate. So, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, you do. Well, we're not talking real estate. We're talking the men and women in our armed forces, Corey, protecting us. So get with the program. Okay. Yeah, that's more important uh, for sure. And you can't have real estate without the armed forces making sure that we're safe. So thank you. Yes. for Protecting. Corey's like that kid at summer camp that sticks his head in your tent and goes, you guys playing cards? <laughs> <laughs> you guys playing real estate? Wait a second. Wait, you guys didn't like that kid? Hey, wait a minute, everybody. We were just getting into triple net leases. Triple net <laughs> leases. Come on. Yeah, I want to go to that <laughs> camp. <laughs> Where's everybody running? Well, we got we got Alan here for the beginning of the show, but let's raise our glass. Alan, OG, Doug, here's to the men and women helping us stay safe. On behalf of the men and women at Navy Federal Credit Union and the men and women making podcast in mom's basement, let's all go stack some Benjamins together for another eight weeks, shall we? Let's go. Who's with me? From Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and buckle up, stackers, because today our guest shares his story of going from banking to the big house and back. What lessons can you learn? Plenty from Sean Hayes. Plus, in our headline segment, the Wall Street Journal dives into what new landlords get wrong. But do they get it right? We'll have thoughts. In our TikTok Minute, we'll help you short-circuit the restaurant system. And we'll throw out the Haven Lifeline to a lucky listener while still saving time for a dose of my delectable trivia. That word makes me uncomfortable. And now, two guys who are ready to help you bust out of financial jail. It's Joe and O J J J J G. Hey there, stackers! And we've been in podcasting jail for a week because we weren't able to be with you. But we are back, ready for another eight weeks of fun. Welcome back to the Stacky Benjamin Show. I am Joe Salci. Hi, average Joe Money on Twitter. Relax, you found us. 
About time for some money fun. And uh, we've got uh, the band back together. The guy across the card table with me, Mr. OG, is here. How are you, my friend? What's up? I am so ready. So ready for another eight weeks. How about you? As ready as I'll ever be. It feels like the weeks never end around (laughs) here. But that's when you're having having a good time. They kind of all run together. Doug, did you? I saw you were out flying your kite during this last week. That must have been nice. But doing a rainstorm might not have been a good idea. Somebody has to discover electricity, Joe. It has someday. Someday somebody's going to do that. And a gentleman here with us, because tomorrow the Stacking Deeds podcast opens its doors for business. Mr. Alan Corey going to hang out with us here for a few minutes. How are you, Alan? Good. Glad to be here. Not in the rain, flying a kite, but it's good to have a peer review, the, the electricity. <laughs> so good, good job, Doug. Alan, for people that don't know your background, let's just talk about your co-host is an engineer full-time. She owns a few rental properties. She is clearly like a lot of our listeners, maybe dipping their toe into real estate, but that is not you. You've jumped in full blast. You are full-time real estate all the time. Yes, I have an obsession, a passion, addiction. You can call it whatever you want, but I've been real estate investing for 23 years. I'm a realtor. I, I, I write books and talk about real estate every single day. So yeah, this is what I was meant to do. So I'm uh, happy to share all my lessons learned because I've, I've made every mistake in the book. Well, a guy who made one big mistake is Sean Hayes. He's upstairs talking to mom right now. He was a, a banker OG who went from a little tiny bank helped build that bank and then switched over and built another bank. In fact, where he's going to tell a story later, I hope, where he is driving down a country road with three quarters of a million dollars in his trunk. Like, have you ever done that before? No comment. (laughs) (laughs) You've you've driven down a road with three quarters of a million dollars worth of Girl Scout cookies in your trunk. I know you've got that. And he didn't even need a car. They're just in his his backseat. So to speak. Talk about junk in your trunk. (laughs) (laughs) We got got OG here. We got Doug here. We got Alan Cordy joining us for the first part of today. And Sean Hayes making an appearance to talk about, well, making a mistake and uh, going to jail for it and then coming back. We're going to talk about what happened. But before all that, Alan, I know your show debuts tomorrow, but even before that, I think you and I have to sit down and have a little talk. Let's do it. Well, listen to this. Hold on. This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? You want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Well, don't worry. Betterment is here to help. 
Betterment's the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal, rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line, and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words, your money's breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money in the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. And now, I think we can get moving. Hello, darlings. And now, it's time for your favorite part of the show, our stacking Benjamin's Headlines. Our piece today comes to us from the Wall Street Journal, and I thought this was uh, appropriate with the Stacking Deeds podcast launching tomorrow. Where New Landlords Go Wrong. This is a piece written by Chris Cornelis. Chris writes, as questions about where interest rates and real estate prices are headed continue to weigh on the market, more people could be tempted to turn their homes into rental properties instead of selling them. But becoming a landlord isn't as straightforward as it might seem. In fact, it comes with far more financial, legal, emotional, and time-consuming factors than many rookies realize. Rents, for example, aren't surging the way they had been in recent years. Oh my goodness, rents surging a ton, OG, the last couple of years up until just recently. But let's walk through some of these points that they make. OG, let's start with you. Treating it like a business. A lot of people that are brand new to being a landlord, don't treat it like a business and get in trouble, this piece says. Yeah. I mean, you look at it like it's just a little plaything or, you know, this is my rent. This is, this is my cottage that sometimes I rent out to other people on Airbnb or something like that. And when you do that, then you are much more loosey goosey with the financials. You're loosey goosey with all the other stuff that goes into renting properties. So if you're going to be a landlord, then be a landlord. Alan, I know a lot of people who are going to be listening to our show, we're going to play it here on the Stacking Benjamins feed as well tomorrow, are just dipping their foot in the uh, real estate pool, so to speak. How do they begin treating it like a business? How do you kind of get that framework set up? Yeah, I like to go in and budget, if, if whether I'm going to rent out my own property or I inherited a property or buying a new property for a property manager. You can do it yourself, but as long as there's room in the budget and the numbers make sense for a property manager to take over, if it's overwhelming or you're not good at it, that's really going to set you up for success because it's really tough if you don't have the skills to be a handyman. I know you can do it, but you have six hours to do it and the time to go to Home Depot, you know, take eight trips to Home Depot because you don't have the right part and, uh, you know, dealing with the tenants and not screening them properly and collecting the rent checks. It does take over your life and it becomes overwhelming. But if you can start with a property manager taking over, wow, it'll feel like a mutual fund that's just passive. Well, I totally agree with that. I I, I, th I don't think it's ever 100% passive, by the way. So I will argue with you on that one. But before you hire the property manager, does it make sense to maybe with your first house, get your feet wet a little bit doing some of this stuff yourself so that, because I know there's got to be some bad property managers out there and it's difficult for a new person to know the difference between a good one and a bad one. Right. Well, I guess it's, you have to at least educate yourself, right? Like why, because you own a house, does that make you an expert on screening tenants? Does that make you an expert on fixing toilets? Does that make you an expert on finding how the best landscaper or pest control bill? Like you, you have to start somewhere. So yes, 
I did it myself when I was in my 20s. I knew nothing. I figured it out. But if you're starting now, I talk to someone else who owns real estate property. I found other investors have been a lifeline. They love helping other investors succeed. They're happy to share their contractors and their lease templates and things like that. So don't do it alone. Just build a network and talk to a realtor, a property manager, a lender in your area. They're going to know who all the investors in town. And I found them very, very willing to meet you for lunch or coffee to, to help you through it. Speaking of fixing toilets, Doug's become an expert at fixing our toilet here. Oh, gee. I mean, the number of times that dude has had to fix the toilet. His eyes are all thick. I thought he was talking to you, OG. I mean, I, I was. I was. I was. I was just commiserating with OG. Like, like, yeah, dude. We promised it would be quiet. Yeah, I do like what Alan's saying though, OG, about surrounding yourself with good people. You get into, you get into any market. You get into any investing opportunity that's not passive. Well, you got to surround yourself with the best people you can find. Well, and of course, real estate investing isn't passive regardless. I mean, even if you have a property manager, you're kind of managing the property manager to some degree, but you're leveraging that person's skill set and network, like you said, to hopefully speed that process up and make it a little bit less, less impactful to you, you know, the, rather than trying to, trying to do all of it on your own. There's some value in trying to learn it too, I think, but, um, but know thyself, (laughs) I know that I'm not a toilet cleaner. Yes. So. And I do love or, the f- or unclogger. Yeah. And I do yeah. love Alan, what you're saying about, you know, you could probably pick and choose those limited areas and not have to be an expert. And I think thinking you got to be an expert is what stops people from going into real estate. Second on this list is underestimating the cost, by the way. Another big mistake many first timers make is underestimating the cost associated with rental properties and assuming they'll be bringing in more money than they actually do. Agree with that one, Alan? Yeah, I, I think that that's true. You've got to have healthy, conservative budgets going in. Like most people use 5% for a vacancy rate, meaning whatever their rental income for the year, 5% is just not going to come in because of vacancies, maybe 10% for repairs. You can be a little bit more conservative with those numbers. I think people really get in over their head on repairs because when you get a quote for a repair or a renovation, really that quote is best case scenario, right? It's, hey, this is going to cost $10,000 to redo your kitchen. That's a best case scenario situation. And very rarely does that happen. So I would always add 20% to any repair or renovation budget that's been given to you. They've got an expert in this piece who says, for a rule of thumb, I think that landlords should be very, very uncomfortable if their cash reserve is anything less than about 15000 on day one. What do you think of that number? Honestly, it really depends on how many properties you have. I think that's that's great if you've got one, two, or three. But back to the mutual fund analogy, it's actually less riskier and less painful when you have more properties because if one's down and one's you know vacant, the other ones are going to prop it up and carry it. Same sort of things happened. You might not get as much rent on one property, but you've got four other that are making a little bit more than you thought. So it, it, it balances the boat and sort of reduces the risk. So it's, it's sort of counterintuitive to think that more properties reduce risk, but that's how I approach it. I want to end, Alan, with uh, this idea further down the piece, lacking a consistent screening process. A lot of the experts in this piece talk about how they have a screening process and yet then their tenant has a buddy who needs a place. So they decide to skip the screening process. Or I know my friend who just needs something for a little time. And they talk about that's when the mistakes really start to happen on this very expensive proposition. 
Stories are the downfall of every landlord. I, like, I don't want to hear any story from any tenant. Like, it, it's, no one ever has a good story that says, hey, I got a bonus. I've got, you know, people moving out. I want to stay here by myself. Well, let's keep the lease terms. Like, every time someone has a story, it's, it's not good news. But that's what's great about software, you know, property management software that is, it, I, I never meet my tenants face to face. I don't have, uh, there's no opportunity for stories. It's here's the lease, here's the terms. And we just, it, it's, it's very businesslike, which is how you set up and run a business. And if you're going to rent from a big apartment complex or anything like that, no one's going to listen to your story. So why, because you're a mom and pop, are you going to start listening to stories and bending the rules? Oh, gee, did you have that with your properties? You, did you start getting uh, some sob stories from people? Well, back to the property manager and trying to find, how do you know if you've got a good one? In the town that I was, uh, that I had the rentals in, there were only two. And the first one I figured out pretty quickly sucked. The second one was better, but it was more like a square root of sucking. So it was like doubly (laughs) sucking, but it was somehow better, (laughs) supposedly. I don't know. It just, so what was interesting was we would hear the stories from the property manager about the tenants or some issues or something like that. We had one one particular issue where we had a water leak and um, and we got it pretty quickly and fixed it and repaired it. And and he was like, well, I'm not going to pay rent because you you ruined one of my jackets. And that jacket was worth, oddly enough, exactly what rent was. Wow. Imagine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the property manager's like, well, he's not wrong. And I'm like, no, he's 100% wrong. Like what, what would we, if the building burns down, do we replace everybody's stuff inside? No, that's what renter's insurance is for. It's in the lease that you're required to have renter's insurance, file a claim with your renter's insurance. I am sorry that that happened. We don't intend for you to, you know, be displaced for any length of time or whatever, but you know, you can't just arbitrarily discount your rent by some number because a coat got some, some water on it and it wasn't supposed to. And the property manager was like, Eh, we should cut him a break. And I'm like, no, man. We no, we're not cutting him a break. He can he can leave if he wants. There's some terms for that too. So small town though. I, I side with you on that, OG. Sort of one, yes. one way to source uh, property management companies is I like the ones with the lowest online reviews because if you read them, they're typically comments from tenants saying they wouldn't let me break my lease early <laughs> or I had no one to talk to. Like, like there's actually good they ones. They wouldn't give me the money for it. the coat. They wouldn't refund yeah. my coat money. Yes, 100%. That's, uh, that's funny. That's, that's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, you're right. The, the bad reviews are the problem. <laughs> you want your like soprano guy to be running your apartment building. <laughs> that's right. The lower the better. You're I was late. He me. beat me with a hammer. <laughs> Kidding. Don't uh, do that. Alan, 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 one more question for you before we say goodbye. You mentioned property management software, right? What are some of these systems that you like? Can you mention a couple? Uh, one I really like is called Hemlane, and they focus on making it very virtual. Like they'll they'll schedule the vendors for you. They'll communicate with the tenants to let the vendors in. And so it's more of like a, a concierge service. Uh, there's a bunch of free programs out there as well that people love. Uh, obviously, you get what you pay for. But if this is going to be a business, I think sort of stepping up and spending a little bit more money uh, up front, it, it just to build the systems and, and have it in, I, I would start with him lane all day. All right. Uh, tomorrow, Stacking Deeds launches. And uh, I saw you had a tent in mom's backyard here ready to go for the launch. Pretty exciting. 
Yeah, no, it's great. Thanks for letting me crash here. And uh, I've, I've been negotiating an offer on, on uh, with your mom on this house. So maybe uh, I'll be your no, landlord soon, no. Joe. That is probably not a great idea for <laughs> you, mom or me. Yes, Stacky Deeds coming tomorrow. That's Alan Corey. Thanks a lot, man. Thank you. Time for our TikTok Minute. Time when we shine the light on a TikTok creator, either creating some brilliant or maybe some uh, eye roll hashtag air quotes brilliance. Uh, Doug, we know what OG would say to this. So let's ask you, do we got brilliance or uh, eye roll brilliance today? Uh, For the last many episodes, I have banked on true academic genius coming from TikTok. And I've been right. I've nailed it. You have been right. For weeks now, but I feel like that streak's coming to an end. I got to (laughs) go with OG on this one and say this one is going to blow. I really don't know if this one, Doug, is brilliance or I roll brilliant. I'll let you guys decide. This is a guy named uh, Mark Dolan. It's the Mark Dolan way on TikTok. Give this a listen. The business model of restaurants is very much about the starter and the dessert. So the profit margin on a starter is very high. And the reason why is because they give you a small portion, but they charge you something approaching what a main would cost. And the dessert is similarly disproportionately expensive for what you actually get. So here's what you do. Do not have a starter and do not have dessert. Okay. Then what you do is you order extra mains. So you take the budget from the starters and the dessert, you put it into the mains. So let me offer you an example. If there were four of you out to dinner, then you order six mains. It's absolutely incredible. So then what happens is that each person has their own main. So that's four mains for each and every one of you. And then two extra mains that go in the middle, which are shared by everyone. I don't know. I tell you what's even smarter, Mr. I've got a classy British accent, dude. Just go to restaurants that have the free bread. (laughs) And keep asking for more free bread. I also kind of think he's overthinking dinner. Like there's part of me that goes, yeah, that's pretty cool. Like I get more food. Maybe we put out extra, extra mains. When we were in North Dakota, we went out with uh, Benjamin Brandt, a great podcaster, good friend of ours. And Benjamin ordered one of every dessert and put them out in the, had him put out in the middle of the table. And I got to say, that was fun. It was really interesting. So he took this and blew it up. But I guess if you're getting dessert, aren't you just getting fun? Like, aren't you getting like, do I really, is, is my goal to get more food or is my goal to sit there over some cheesecake that tastes good? And I know it's overpriced, but I'm yeah. just having a good time. Like, what is, what is the goal here? Is it to optimize my restaurant non-screwage factor? I think if I go out to a restaurant, don't I know that they're already hitting me with some pretty high fees? Meanwhile, make sure you order three bottles of the finest cab. Right. That has no yes. markup, nor does yes. any booze. <laughs> Like an espresso martini, that'll be nineteen dollars. You're like, hmm, it's a lot of vodka in this. Guess not. When we were in uh, southern Egypt, we went to a went to a restaurant. There was a bottle of wine, OG, that was a hundred and twenty dollars, and it was I think it I think it's uh, gnarly head Zinfandel, which I believe is eight ninety nine at Albertsons, and it was a hundred and twenty dollars at this at this. We need restaurant. a uh, complete side note, Doug. We. 
We need a bell for every time Joe mentions where he's been. I was just like, thinking. I was in North Dakota. Ding. When I was in Egypt. Ding. Like we yeah. just need like just something to draw everyone else's attention <laughs> we had two to. Two different trips in one segment this time. <laughs> I was going to see if he could go for the trifecta. I know it wasn't even. It was like a run-on sentence. It was a semicolon. It wasn't even like a period, a new paragraph. It was just like an ellipses with. And then when I was in. Egypt. When I was in North Dakota, I was reminded of the time that I was in yes. Saskatchewan. Yes, which was an amazing trip on the train. And the train is kind of funny because it's like a boat on ground. And this boat trip that I went on over the holidays in Europe was pretty amazing. I tell you about that trip. That was some good stuff. I don't know. Is this guy overthinking dinner? Is he overthinking dinner? Well, he said the word budget in there. And that's when I lost me. Because if you're worried about just don't go. If you've got a budget issue, you should to maybe to OG's point, you shouldn't be there in the first place. If 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 more food in more mains sounds like fun to you, like those extra desserts sound fun and go for it. But I I just don't know about the money factor. I don't know. I know this is a money show, but that there's nothing about that optimizing dinner at the restaurant that sounds like a good time. Unless you're doing it for a good time. Like you said, order one of everything. Yeah. Like my favorite thing to do uh, the appetizer thing when the Server comes over, you know, hey, we've got that go. Hold on. Just bring whatever you think is the best and enough for everybody to eat. But if you done and they're that, like panic, they're like, uh, well, do you like, like, no, no, no. You bring what you like. You bring what you think is the best and enough for everybody to eat. And then like shift your attention to someone, something else. Yeah. And see what happens. It's a fun game to play. Like the, uh, like the dessert thing. I was just going to ask you if you've ever played that game from a Bedouin hut in uh, Jordan. No, maybe, maybe not. Oh, it's just one of us that have. This reminds me of this time <laughs> when I was bartering over goat milk in the Arabian desert. Coming up next, Sean Hayes. Sean Hayes was the co-founder and former CEO of Allegiant Bancor, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri. He started multiple successful businesses, was involved in the casino business, bought, owned, and sold hundreds of residential commercial properties. He's an entrepreneur, an author, a speaker, and and he's a felon. He's going to talk about his trip to the big house and then after uh, what led up to it. We're also going to talk about banking. Oh, gee, as you remember, banking, uh, banking's heyday in the 80s and 90s, much different than it is today. Way, way, way different much more uh, relationship-based, a lot more small banks, of course, with some of the issues that happened with savings and loans back in the 1990s. Things changed a lot in banking. But before all that, uh, Doug, Doug, wake up, man. Hey, it's trivia time, dude. Uh, Trivia time. Hey there, stackers. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And I just realized that the Sean Hayes is going to join us. Man, I loved that guy in Will and Grace when he was just Jack. So good. But Joe, you said he was going to share his story of going to jail? I didn't know that guy went to the slammer. I just, I knew he had to wake you up because you missed half of it. It's its not that Sean Hayes, dude. Oh. Well, well, there goes my premise for today's trivia. See, Sean was on Will and Grace, and those two had a favorite game show whose title was financially related and could also be referring to an illegal scheme to make money. So, what game show was it? 
I'll be back with the answer right after I go study for my personality test. Hey, Staggers, it's Military Appreciation Month. You know what that means. We are recognizing all of our stackers in the audience. My good friend Nords, Doug Nordman, who uh, some of you may know, he is a writer in personal finance. He's a guy I'd like to do a shout out to. He is such a giving member of the FIRE community, the Financial Independence Retire Early community. Uh, Nords will do anything for you. It's just, just, I think some of that comes from his time on a submarine, like my nephew Colin, who's on a submarine right now, and all the work that uh, he did there. Just a super giving member of the community. And you know what? A Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate their members who go above and beyond, not this month, but every month. Navy Federal offers members only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Here's one of their offers in honor of Military Appreciation Month. Join and get $50 when you open a credit card. Of course, you want to have your whole debt strategy planned out, don't you? Don't just go open a credit card willy-nilly, as mom says. Uh, Here's a disclaimer. you got to join and open your membership savings account between May 1st and May 31st, so get on it, stackers. Annual percentage yield is a 0.25% for membership savings account, $5 minimum balance to open. Maintain your membership savings account to obtain the bonus. Visit NavyFederal.org for full terms and conditions. That's just one of the things. They offer 24-7 help for their U.S.-based service members. They have resources all over the place. Head to NavyFederal.org for full terms, conditions, and other offers. Navy and Federal is insured by NCUA Equal Housing Lender. Well, if you're new to Stacky Benjamins, you may not know that I've tried out a lot of personal finance apps. I like to be a guinea pig and try out all these things so I know what I'm talking about when it comes to uh, what's helpful and what isn't helpful. And uh, the app that I've used the longest has been Monarch Money, and it's because Cheryl and I, my spouse, were able to collaborate together. We can work on our goals together, and our budget and our goals are right next to each other on the app. It is clearly the next generation of personal finance apps. So what is it? Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, because you're a stacker, you'll get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. I love the fact that we get to collaborate. I love the fact that it's customizable. And I also love that it's this ad-free privacy you can trust. They never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch myself, I totally get why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, because you're a stacker, you're going to get an extended 30-day free trial to try it out like I try out many different apps. And this one was sticky for me because, well, you'll see when you try out the 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash Benjamins for your extended 30-day free trial. Hey there, stackers. I'm showcase showdown lover and no whammy yeller, Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. Will and Grace were big fans of one TV game show with a title that's simultaneously a reference to lots of Benjamins and an illegal money-making scheme. What was it? On several episodes, Will and Grace watched a show that could have been about 100 Benjamins and a Ponzi scheme. It was the $10,000 Pyramid. Yeah, that wasn't the actual theme, but I hope you got it right anyways. 
and here to help you keep it right with the law and your money, let's say hello to the real Sean Hayes. And I'm so happy he's here with us today, Sean Hayes on my Dad Shortwave Radio. How are you, man? I'm wonderful. Beautiful day and glad to be on your show. Well, I don't know if you heard our trivia before you came on, but uh, let's just be clear. You are no relation to the Sean Hayes who played Jack on Will and Grace, correct? He spells his name wrong. I'm S-H-A-U-A. <laughs> he does. He spells it right. I, I love that. Just to give people an idea, Sean, of who the real Sean Hayes is. I mean, let's be clear. You began in banking in what year? 1982. Do you remember your first day working in banking? I do. I was late, if you can imagine that. <laughs> oh, no. That's not good. What happened? Well, I grew up in a family that used banks not very often, and it said on the door, I went down the day before, and it said nine to three, so I figured if I was there by nine, I was okay. I didn't realize employees were supposed to be there before eight. Oops. But I can't believe they wouldn't tell you that on day one. Like they just go, no, show up on this day. But hey, it says on the door 9 a.m. So what were you supposed to think? Exactly. Uh, you took a test, though, a few weeks later, you write in your book, and they asked you if you'd stolen from the bank. You talk about your home life early in your book and growing up. And hey, we don't steal in our family. So you wrote, no, tell me about this test. Well, it was a test, and, and there were like 30 young men and women, and they're all management trainees in different parts of the company. And, and question one was, have you stole anything from this company? Well, to me, it was obviously, no, I hadn't. And uh, the instructor very quickly uh, admonished me and corrected everyone and said, but you will. And he made a, a very interesting point that stuck with me the rest of my life. And very soon thereafter, I went, uh, an older, a young, but an older banker than I took me on a blind date with his girlfriend. And we went and used the bank's tickets in a box at a baseball game. And at the end of the night, I uh, gave him $90 and uh, I noticed he paid with his company credit card. So not only had we used stolen their tickets and eaten their food, the company had paid for it and he pocketed my money. And when you get in business, you start seeing those kind of things. And then all of a sudden, the analogy I used in 2023 is, is Black Monday. How many people buy goods and services when they're on the payroll? And it's such a good analogy. You talk a lot about how, especially in those early days in banking, Sean, well, throughout your career, not just in banking, but all the different things that you did, relationships were really everything to you. Yes. One, I love the game and people make the game fun. And what's happened to banking and, and to a whole lot of life with technology is everywhere you turn, they try to take the, the personal element out of it. And, uh, and that was where our margin was. We look people in the eye. As I said, we want to press flesh and burn shoe leather and go look the man or the woman in the eye and you're going to learn a lot about them. And, and, and we did. And we made a lot of money. Well, and your parents weren't pro bank, but I think it must have been because of that relationship focus. Was that why you think you were so good at it early on? Yes, it was because when at a young age, I, I learned that uh, I had enough jobs dealing with people that if you treated people well, people really like and respect that. And when I moved to St. Louis 39 years ago this month, I knew virtually no one. And I literally went door to door and people remembered that. And it really, it built a great career for me and it made our company really special. You talk about some of the great mentorship that you had, Sean, early on. You work for a, a family in Kansas City that I think a lot of our Kansas City listeners know, the Kemper family. Can you tell me about the Kempers and working with Crosby Kemper? Well, there was a Jamie Kemper, which is the David, the commerce side, and they were very professional and their children 
went away to work for J.P. Morgan and other large banks and then came back. On the Crosby Kemper side, they grew up in the company and it was truly a family business. Even though it was a public company, they owned about 20 percent. And he was larger than life. Crosby Jr., who I worked for, was six feet seven and he was a Holy. big man. And when he walked into a room, he had a presence. You knew he was there. Well, and you're not a small man. No, no, I, I'm six three, but he was six seven, and he had that voice, and with that gray hair, and he dressed impeccably, and he just walked in, and he immediately started working the room, and that, and that's where I learned it is, you know, you walk into a room and you start shaking hands and introducing yourself to people, and and good things happen, especially in those days in banking, because somebody met you, and then something went wrong at their bank, and then all of a sudden you get a phone call, <clears throat> and that was how I built a business. It's funny because part of your your ultimate downfall in banking was around around mortgages. The Kempers didn't like residential mortgages at all. No, we did. We we did not. We didn't like real estate. Period. Six months before I joined, and a week after I accepted the job, he sent out a memo that was famous, dated December 7, nineteen eighty one, and it was outlined how real estate was the end of the world in his mind. And in 1986, with the Tax Act, when it changed investment real estate and the way the tax credits were done, then he was proven right. But no, he did not like real estate. You had to explain him. So this guy's six foot seven. He towers over you and you're tall. Uh, you had to explain to him one day about your bank branch losing $18,000. Can you tell us that story? Because that, that, that stopped me when I was reading your book, Sean. Well, in, you know, most banks, the teller line you walk up to and you just walk up to it. This was in a in Crown Center that Hallmark had developed and the teller line was shaped like a football. So the money came from under the floor in tubes, no different than a drive up and standard operating procedure. And I don't know who would have been this bright, but was you got the tube. And if you were busy, you put it in your trash can. And literally the person left $18,000 in a trash can in the cleaning crew. The next day, guess what? That person didn't show up. They were $18,000 better off and never was to be found. <laughs> and explaining that was tough and very tough. And you, you, one thing is not in the book, but I have to say this because Drury Hotels is now a, a pretty much a national company. Sure. I had, when I was the number three man in St. Louis in charge of corporate banking, Mr. Drury Sr. showed up, wanted to talk to why he was declined for a home mortgage. And I was the only senior executive available. And we spent about an hour together and developed an unbelievable friendship. But I had to explain to him, we wouldn't send him money to buy a house because he was a real estate developer because he developed hotels. That tells you how much we didn't like real estate. Wow. I couldn't imagine telling that guy no, especially when he gives you free happy hour, right? Anybody that gives you free beer at five o'clock. I think they're the most successful hotel chain. They've never had one closed. And truly for the next 25 years, anytime he would see me in public, he would come at me and say, this is the banker who wouldn't lend me money on my house, but uh, he was a good man. Wow. Well, you, I don't think you'd want to be on that guy's bad side. I wanted to ask you about this. You talk early in the book about banking with integrity, about how relationships mean everything. You write that banking was so much different than you would definitely give different treatment to different customers. The strategy was you knew your customer, you knew everything, you knew their personal situation, you knew their business situation. And you use that obviously to our advantage to, to make money and not to, to mitigate risk and hopefully not lose money. And that information was so valuable. You could open a credit file in those days and you would learn about their children, you know, what went on everything in their life. It was just like reading a book about someone. And that allowed you to make a good business decision because you knew if that person had an issue. And, you know, we only lost money, quite honestly, if there was gambling, 
alcohol, drugs, or divorce. It was very hard to lose money in a business loan unless those things happened, because once one of those things happened, then you had a problem. That's why you really want to know your customer. Well, and I, and I love the idea of knowing my customer, and I'm a little bit conflicted because on one side, Sean, like I can see how that may lead a bank towards some discriminatory practices, right? That some people Absolutely. will get left out, left out because of this, you know, discrimination or even just perceived discrimination. But on the other side, I look at Bank of America and Wells Fargo and some of the crap that goes down in banks now, Sean. And these banks, you know, you walk into your average bank and there is zero customer service. There's zero love for the bank. It's become such a commodity. Is there a way where we, you think we can remarry uh, relationship banking for the average person, not for the person with bajillions of dollars, but the average person and these anti-discriminatory practices? I think it's forever gone. And that's unfortunate because you've been in the financial services business long enough to remember when everything was in a credit score. And we made a lot of loans. Race and sex were not an issue. And credit score today would have been declined. We bet on that person. And that's how we built a business. In fact, in St. Louis, people say, how do you know? Because I know people from the African-American community. We had, as soon as I bought a bank in St. Louis, we had African-Americans on the board. We had women on the board. This is 33 years ago before it was the fashionable and in some states now almost a required thing to do. We did it because it was good for business. Because if you wanted to know about a community, if you had someone from that board, they would come to you. And I'll never forget, there was a very prominent young African-American lawyer. And a lawyer called me up and said, Sean, this guy has bad credit because he had to work his way through law school. He's borrowed a lot of money. He and his wife want to buy a house. They don't have enough money down. But I guarantee you, he will be a good risk. And you know what? Not only is he a good risk, he brought us referral after referral after referral. We built a business on men and women like that. So that, so that's what was there then that's gone forever because now, just what you say, some people have discriminated and, and everything without the discrimination piece in there weighs on the credit score. And that's really a shame. You've taken the human element out. Early in your career, you moved to St. Louis, which was a big move for you. You write that you, while you live between Kansas City and St. Louis, you felt much closer to St. Louis, but the bank that you were with St. Louis, St. Louis not only wasn't big for them, Sean, you misunderstood a conversation that you were in as you're leaving for St. Louis that what it, it was going to be, I think you thought you were going to make $12,000 the first year or something, or the bank was going to make $12,000 and it was $12, something like that. I don't remember. Well, here's what it was. It, it literally, the bank in St. Louis had opened about 10 years in 73. And I went over in, in, uh, in actually 39 years ago in February, but this was in January and we were in a meeting and Mr. Kemper, the, the CFOs were in there because as a young banker, this is what really molded me. Part of my training, I was in a different training program. I sat in rooms with the senior executives and all kinds of acquisitions. And we're in there talking about the numbers for the end of the year. And the controller who I'd worked with a, a six months earlier for a few months, he said, uh, he, Crosby, he Crosby said, Sean, you're going over. We had a great month. We finally made money. We made $24,000. And okay, now, number one, that's not much money. Right. Okay? It should have been right. like a quarter million. But they were so excited. And then poor Jerry Rice had to say, uh, Crosby, we made $24. We sent Crosby into this. Why didn't we just take one more person to lunch so we could lose money <laughs> for the 10th year in a row? <laughs> that was. Such a horrible, horrible, horrible story. Let's go into from those early days where things are so, so fun to really, it felt like, Sean, you get into this mode of bigger, faster, richer, and you write that while you're making more and more money, it was never enough 
Tell me about the beginning of really Sean going from Sean 1.0 to Sean moving so fast that you're not even seeing things around you begin to unravel. Well, and it started, and, and, and you have a lot of listeners who are entrepreneurs, and I can't tell you how important it is to surround yourself with good people. And for 15 years, I had four people that I saw at least twice a month, if not more frequently, who were not in banking, who were very bright and successful in their own industry. And I love to tell the story that if they asked me something about banking, why do we do that? If I ever said, because that's the way we've always done it, that meant we had to retool it. So I had that challenge every day. Then we sold to a Fortune 200 and I ended up in a silo and I let my ego because I, I no longer have these people around me to hold me in check. And I think I can't do anything wrong and I can't make a mistake. And then greed kicks in. And then the last thing is, you know, and, and you, you understand markets well, most markets are run by two things, fear and greed. Well, I've got greed out the kazoo and all of a sudden the fear of what's happening around me where it just collapses, as I said the first months of 08, I was losing $10 million a month personally between the stock market, the real estate market, and the banking business. And now then I'm alone. I have greed at the front of my mind and I have fear all over me. And then my downfall began. Was it that greed also that made your personal life also so difficult? Because you lose you lose your first wife during this whole time, Sean, and and it just seems like you're spending so much time at work. And I had a mentor, to your point, trying to surround myself with good people, tell me this, like, make sure you're not spending all your time at work. It certainly felt to me like you were spending so much time at work that that was also the unraveling on the personal side. And there's a direct correlation. I couldn't agree more. It just It's one of those things. You have to have a balanced life. And, uh, and unfortunately, I don't want any of your listeners to go through what I had to go through. And, and I've said this many years now in a row, I'm finally happy with myself. I'm comfortable with who I am. I enjoy my life like I've never done it before, but I had to fall a long way and go through a lot of muck to figure that out. And it's a lot simpler than that. It's, it's truly balanced. It's surrounding yourself with smart people and it's, it's keeping your eye on the prize. And the prize isn't money. The prize is set goals and objectives that are important to you in the long run, not, not money. You can always make money. We talk about surrounding yourself with good people. I'm so glad that you brought that up, Sean. But also, you know, the fact that you're the king or queen of your own situation. You still need to dot I's and cross T's. And you write in your book that it was your lack of due diligence that really began your downfall. Can you can you talk about a couple of those deals that ended up being some of the deals that ultimately the FBI and then the government went after you for? Absolutely. And by the way, I take full responsibility. Harry Truman had it on the president's desk. The buck stops here. And I made those decisions and I got myself where it was. But like when we were talking earlier and I, we were talking about 2007 and 8, I bought a bank that ultimately sent me to jail. I sent people over to do due diligence and I didn't go myself. And every bank I bought prior to that under the Allegiant brand, I had always done the due diligence myself. I not only let other people do it in 2007, I let them do it in 2008. In both times, you didn't get what you thought you got, Sean, and I deserved what I got by not doing it myself because we would go in and look at banks in the prior years, and you right off the bat just knew they may not have a lot of problems, but you could just see things that told you they were going to, and you didn't need a collapse like happened in 2008, 9, 10, 11 to see those problems, and I missed all that, and I, I lost my ground intelligence, and that's one of the things for your people in business for themselves 
I call it guerrilla marketing, guerrilla intelligence, is being on the ground and knowing what's going on around you is so crucial. And I don't just mean geography. I mean knowing what's going on in your markets. I didn't do that. I thought I was so smart that I could rely on people giving me reports. And I missed that stuff. And then I got my back against the wall and I justified it. I justified my crime. I knew I was committing a crime because I wasn't taking money. That was that was how I was able to look myself in the mirror. And but it was still a crime. And I knew it was when I did it. And that was that was my absolute undoing. But I was unraveling for years, as you can tell. Well, and even before you went to jail, it was all unraveling financially. I mean, everything was unraveling financially. You wrote, I was selling anything I could to pay people in order to placate them. I paid back tens of millions of dollars of debt, but no one remembers that. They remember who didn't get paid, which, by the way, made me groan because uh, back in the mid-90s when I had my financial blow up, Sean, I felt the same way. I felt like uh, I had creditors calling me every day. I felt like I was on the, you know, I had nobody I could call for help. There was nothing I could do. And I felt like I got rid of one creditor, three more piled on. Yours was that, but to a hundred times my story, I can't imagine how you felt in those days where it felt like every single day you're being hit with something new. Right. And, And you do. I truly, if I, you know, if I would have been on the banker side and by the way, the world had changed, you know, by then. I would have been grateful for what the borrower did, one, in communicating with me, and two, and literally every time I sold something, giving people money that they weren't legally entitled to. But morally, I owed the money. And um, I even cashed in a million seven in my IRA and paid taxes to pay people. And and that all goes un, unnoticed. People, you know, they're just not satisfied when they're when they're in that situation. Sean, exactly what were the things that you did that ultimately ended up with you going to prison. What was it that you did? Well, I had uh, a transaction that was, I had learned about 30 years before from a man who became almost a billionaire in the banking business and whom we bought our first bank from. During the debacle of the RTC in the late 80s and early 90s, he bought bad assets from banks and the government and then put them on the books of good banks. Now, the government doesn't like that, but what he did that was brilliant was he had good guarantors, people who could show they could repay the loan. I, I had this friend that we'll get to the crime and he had quite a bit of bad assets. So we negotiated to buy $16 million worth of them for approximately $9 million. And he got a doctor, he got a, a car dealer and another real estate man who all had excellent credit, cash, liquidity, and the ability to resurface the debt with the real estate loans being non-performing. And that made my bank about a million dollars, which really helped. The problem was he and I had a loan at one of the banks we bought him from. And that loan was a property that was going to become a target in 2008. Target canceled everything. And the bank wanted out of it because it was tied to him. Because I own more than 25%, I actually own 54%, I couldn't do any business with myself. So even if I disclosed it, if it had been less than 25%, I could have disclosed it to the board and I wouldn't have had a problem. I chose because I'd seen this man work through so many problem assets before. I chose to break the law all on me and bet, and that's what it was, was a bet that he would just do what he had planned to do, which was liquidate the $60 million of real estate that the investors would make money. Obviously, the bank would make money and he'd make a little money, but he'd eliminate $16 million in problems. That was the felony because 
I benefited myself in just enrichment's a term I would use, but it's bank fraud at the expense of the shareholders, the, the depositors, the government, because I did that. It was a felony if he had a performed. The problem was he didn't perform. What I didn't realize is his problems were tenfold what we fixed for him or what we actually saw as an opportunity. And he saw that once he'd fixed that 16 million, instead of just working it through and making some money, he forgot about it and went on trying to solve his next problem. So therein lies my crime. And at the time, Sean, even though you knew that, that this may be a crime, you, you had so much crumbling around you. You know, you knew it may take the government a while. You were trying to shore up your financial picture. Exactly. I, I, my bet was twofold. One, I bought myself time, and I really only bought myself about 11 months in reality. Two, is that I thought he would work through this, and I'd seen him do hundreds and hundreds of times before when he'd buy other people's assets that were problems and work through them from the 20-some years I'd done business with him. So I thought he would do that, and it would not only let the crime go away, they would at the same time enrich everybody from a, from what was a sound transaction if it had been executed. But I just, you know, I missed the mental part of it. And that was, you know, I justified it to myself, though, and this is very important for your listeners, because I wasn't embezzling money. And since I wasn't taking money, to me, I could justify it. I knew it was wrong. I knew it was a crime. But that's what, you know, was the tipping point. You were banned by the FDIC. And and you, this is a quote from FDIC, you quote, engaged or participated in violations of law, regulation, unsafe or unsafe or unsound practices and or breaches of fiduciary duty as an institution affiliated party of XL Bank. Your conduct involved, quote, personal dishonesty. I can't imagine how it felt when that judgment came down. It was one, you know, and, and when you're going through that, you keep thinking, well, this is as low as it can go, but it always seemed to find another bottom. And uh, there were several after that. And I thought that was the lowest point. You find out that the government's coming to get you. You're making arrangements to turn yourself in, but that's not ultimately what happened. Can you tell our stacker community how that went down? Yeah. And I, you know, it, it's a terrible thing, but the week before Christmas, they said, we're going to indict you any day. Well, then it took four months. I went down and met with them again in March. And they said, you need to carry your passport with you because we're going to decide one day that we're indicting you and you need to come in and surrender. I'd been to Jefferson City, the capital, negotiating a favorable outcome with the government on something totally unrelated. And I drove to back to my, my youngest son's baseball game. And he was uh, the number two hitter and he was on deck. And I was sitting right by an home plate and then an FBI agent who I'd met. Uh, several years earlier, tapped me on the shoulder and said, come with me. And I turned the corner and there were six more. You know, that really, when you think you can't go any lower, I obviously deserve to be arrested, but it didn't need to happen there. And then I go the next morning to be arraigned. And I'm now a fugitive because I have my passport in my car after they told me to carry my passport. It was disheartening at every turn. And I, that's part of the strategy. They really want to break you. And I understand that. And I deserved it. I had a, there was somebody that spoke to us when I worked for American Express who had gone to prison. And he said that when he got in jail, Sean, when he went to jail, he said, my business acquaintances were behind me. He goes, oh yeah, they were behind me. I looked behind me and they were way, 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 way back there. Like everybody moved way, way, way far away. I can imagine that had to have been what happened to you too. All of a sudden, nobody wants anything to do with Sean Hayes. 
Absolutely. And uh, somebody asked me that question, not in, a, in a, an environment like this, but socially a few weeks ago, because they were here in St. Louis. And I whipped out two names of people that stood beside me like I just couldn't imagine. And telling them the story was heartbreaking because what you really figure out when you're in that situation is who really cares and who really are your friends and who aren't. And it's going to be a great awakening for virtually everyone, in my opinion. What did you learn in prison? Well, I learned that the system is terribly broken. And I had an experience that most white-collar people never have because I spent 15 months in a county jail, which uh, houses local, state, and federal prisoners. So I had, like I said, when I went to prison, everybody's like, you've been handcuffed. I never went to to jail, I mean, to court that I wasn't handcuffed and shackled. So I've seen it at its worst, and uh, I was in in three institutions. But uh, one good thing did come out of it, and it's a a program called RDAP, a Residential Drug and Alcohol Treatment Program. And it's a program that uh, teaches you, uh, it's a cognitive behavioral, it's a thinking program. And I would suggest to the government, it belongs in middle school. Because it really changed the way I wow. think. Wow! It, it's that good, and it's the one good thing that came out. Other than that, the system it takes people away from their family, and uh, it costs productivity. And lastly, and this is a sad thing, I got out, and they require you to get a a thirty hour a week job. I tried the first job I wanted because I knew I was going to write and speak. I determined that before I ever went in, and uh, I wanted to make beds at the largest hospital provider in St. Louis, and I checked the box. I was a felon. They hired me, and then they uh, told me I couldn't come to work because I was a felon making beds in a hospital. Then I went to the second largest hospital chain in St. Louis to work in the morgue because I thought a great title for the book might be from the boardroom to the morgue. And uh, they went through the same thing, said, you're hired. We want to have you. And then they called back and said, oops, you're a felon. We can't have you, even though you disclosed that. And that tells me how hard it is for the average person who goes through the correctional experience, who serves their time, and wants to rebuild their life, and just want to get a job. You just can't. It's so hard. People don't realize it. We spoke with uh, Michael Santos. I don't know if you know who he is, Sean, but he also is an American uh, prison consultant now. He he went to prison on uh, drug charges. We talked to him a few years ago and just a fascinating individual. And he echoed your your concern that, you know, we talk about prison reform. Well, there's prison. There isn't enough reform. And then when you come out, there's no opportunity for you when you come out. No, it's sad. And we're in a place where the employment level is so low and you've got some really talented men and women who want to change their lives and they are met at every turn with hardships that the average American just can't imagine. Sean, what's the biggest thing that you really want to convey to people to uh, not just to avoid the mistakes you made, but also all the great stuff that happened to you early in your career, all the strengths that obviously got you to that high point before your fall. What, what do you hope people take away from your message? I, I think the key message, it's okay to fail. And we all hear that. But when you had as much success as I did for so long and, you know, 30 years of it, and then failure hits you. If I would have just accepted failure, I would have never gone. I would have committed a crime. I would have gone to prison. But as I say, I wouldn't change anything because my mission now is to help one or more people, hopefully a lot more than one, not make that mistake. But you have to embrace failure. It's an event. It truly is. And you read that. But I think hearing from someone that's lived it, one, is impactful. And two, someone who had so much success. Because one thing I've learned is there's a whole lot of people in prison that were there. Uh, I had four people in my RDAP class who were on American Greed those people, you know, stole billions of dollars in cases. Yeah. And their activity had been criminal from day one. 
I had a 30 year successful career and then I did something stupid. So I think it's a failure piece of that. It's understanding, accepting and dealing with it because we're all going to fail. I couldn't put down your book. It's called The Great Choice Lessons on My Journey from Big Time Banking to the Big House and Back. Sean, where do we get the book? You can get it at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and or you can go to my website and, and, and it links you to one of those as well. Um, I'm glad you enjoyed it. It's been fun. And uh, I hope you enjoyed the stories about the road because uh, I, I was, I, I've become a fan of your show. And I, I saw one Twitter where, and I can't remember, it was a Sean thing where it's just do it. And that was, you saw a lot of cases where we just did it. Yeah. And, and that's what people, when you just do it, good things happen. But when you think about, when you keep getting ready to get ready, you don't ever get there. And um, so, uh, I, I hope those stories inspire many young entrepreneur or many old entrepreneur. Well, can we end them with one last story about just do it? You in the car. I'd love for you to tell this story if you don't mind. You I'd in, love to. You truthfully. in the car with uh, three quarters of a million dollars in your trunk. Tell that story. I will. You know, a, a few people knew about this 33 years ago. <laughs> yeah. I didn't start. I, I, I started writing the book. And then my oldest nephew said, Uncle Sean, you're crazy. And I have one cousin living on my mother's side. <laughs> He said, why didn't you sleep in the car? Right. So we buy this bank and, and most people start banks. We bought it because it was making money. But when you buy some making money, you want to make it, have it make more money. So your investors are happy. And so we figured out Fed funds were 9% and we had a million one fifty in vault cash, million one in vault cash. And it earns you nothing. It counted towards reserve requirements. So my partner said, you know what? We take three quarters of a million dollars and put it in the Fed. We'll earn like 60,000 more a year. That's pretty good. The first week you own the bank and prove earnings 5,000 a month. So he said, call Brinks. And they wanted $250. And, and back to your entrepreneurial audience, they know that any money you spend, you think about. And I said, wait a minute, $250. $250. And they're going to come a week from I'm not going to do that. We, so have, the we, was, we have a percentage, Sean. We have a percentage of our audience who's listening to you. They're nodding your head because they won't go out to dinner because it's going to cost them 15 unnecessary dollars. So these are your people. Oh, exactly. I took my lunch. Yeah, same thing. So what happens is, I go, Mike, they want $250. I said, let's just load it in the trunk of my car. Well, the first thing is when you see a movie, and now, by the way, I understand they're dealing hundreds, and we were dealing with fives, tens, twenties. I filled the trunk of an 89 Buick. <laughs> and not only that, it was 168 miles. It's late October. It's dark as the devil. It's a two-lane road for like 120 of those 168. And then we get to my house, and it's like, what are we going to do with it? My heart beats 120 beats a minute just listening to the story. I can't imagine what yours was being on top of all this money. Well, driving down, it was, I, mean, I had a whole day string well, like I never in my life have had a whole day string well. But then I get home and we lug it into the family room because we, we can't leave in the trunk. And then we put blankets on it. And then everybody sleeps in the family room. God forbid the house catches on fire or, you know, something bad goes wrong. Then at 4.30 in the morning, we get up, load it in the trunk, drive downtown and, and the feds on 4th Street. And on 4th Street, there's a line of brakes truck and one red 89 Buick with three quarters of a million dollars. That's how crazy we were. But you know what? We started making $5,000 more a month. So to me, it was worth it. That's frugal, people. That's frugal right there. Sean Hayes, thank you so much for spending a few moments with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Remy, and I love your show. I really appreciate this. This is Matt from Gainesville, Georgia. And when I'm not delivering all this consumerism in a big brown package parcel, I'm stacking Benjamins. Big thanks to Sean for that incredible story. And it always amazes me when someone has the courage to tell really what's got to be in a, just an excruciating time. But I think there's just a ton of lessons there. But I want to go back to the beginning of that discussion, OG. 
first day at the bank showing up, you know, on, on, on his own time. You remember your first day working in a bank? I do. Well, not including the training, which I thought was exceptionally boring. But I worked at the branch that was inside the grocery store. Remember when those were kind of all yes. the rage? Oh, yeah. I was, you know, I was hot. You know what? And I could bank like the bankers could most bankety bank ever. I don't even know. And so I get done to I get done to the end of my, you know, whatever shift. And they're like, okay, cool. And they, you know, the manager comes over and types all this stuff into the thing. And and then, you know, we count all the money and she's like, and you're four hundred dollars short. And it wasn't even like a four hundred, like even it was like some odd number. And I was like, Well, I didn't take it. And she goes, Well, I hope not. That would be a bad, bad look on your first day. You know, and you know, obviously I had coded something incorrectly as a deposit instead of a withdrawal or something like that, you know, and they had to go back through like every single transaction for, you know, four hours to find the one that was the incorrect one. And then I got knocked down a peg pretty quickly of like, okay, well, uh, so we thought that uh, you could run this, but uh, tomorrow you'll be shadowing Nancy and uh, she can help. And it was so painful to go back to the beginning of like, I thought I thought I had this a day in, you know, and uh, and instead I got to spend the next day with Nancy, just sitting next to her, watching Nancy work, being introduced as her trainee. It was great. So everybody knew Nancy. I remember somebody uh, within their first month complaining. They're like, "I'm working with all these these just cr- crappy accounts, like peep." People that had no money with us, you know, this is back when it was, this is back before fee only planning was even a thing, oh, Amex, right? You're saying. Yeah. Yeah. This was totally, completely just commission sales yeah. at the beginning, frankly, commission financial planning and, uh, and just learning all these cheesy sales skills. But this one guy, I remember his name was James. James is just coping with the fact he's like, I've got an MBA. And and they're giving me the they're giving me like these just crappy accounts. These people don't want to talk to us. They're all bitter. They're all just these, you know, because just think about it. When you first begin with a company, and actually our manager said it to him, he just blows up at our manager in front of everybody in our training class one day. And Tony's like, Really, James? So you thought we were gonna take the million dollar accounts and give them to the new guy? Like that's that's how you run a company, like, oh, James is new, he's been here less than a month. You know what? Let's give him those trusted relationships that we've been working on forever. And hand it to the new guy that has no idea how we work. It's a great way to run a business, James. James James quit, I think, like two weeks later. He was gone. Bye, James. Bye. Yeah. Did they say that? <laughs> they did not say that. No. <laughs> 1974, when you started at American Express. Easy. Man, come on. Ageism here on the show, Doug. There was he just came out of nowhere with that too. Everything seemed to be going along well. Hurtful, hurtful. And then it was just his eyes had these little lightning bolts in them, and it was like, I know. It's just a left. Hook. I'm going to have to throw out the Haven Lifeline just to get out of this, so I don't start crying. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency. Would you say OG was a happy child? <laughs> Sorry. All right, Doug. What you value first? What do I value first? You know what I value is a good bowl of fiber. Oh just a, <laughs> just your your feed OG even more. He's like case in point. Yeah, I, I I do though. You know, some days, some mornings, it's just really it's just really good. To I just should get just a good start to the oh, day. There are days I need to call on myself, Joe. What do you value? I value <laughs> good friends. I need to call on myself. <laughs> 
how you value friends that look up at you as the elder statesman you are instead of making fun of your advanced age. That's what I value. And you know why? That's why they've made buying quality term life insurance actually simple at Haven Life. Go to stackingbenjamins.com slash Haven Life now for a free quote at Haven Life. No waiting several weeks for a decision. Really lovely customer support. All policies issued by their parent company, Mass Mutual, more than 160 years old. Today, we're going to throw out the lifeline to Eric. Hello, Eric. Hey, OG. Yut, yut. Devil dog. Hoorah. Simplify. Chesty puller. Need some advice from a fellow Marine. Soon, we will need to replace my wife's 10-year-old car. How should we pay for it? Do we get a loan and pay it off quickly? Do we cash out our first not-so-great investment to pay for the vehicle? After living basic expenses and saving close to 30% in our retirement accounts, we have excess cash of approximately $1,500 a month. 20 years ago, we invested 10 k in a bank S&P 500 A-share fund. Through the years, I've learned the error of my ways. On top of the front-loaded fee, the fund has a baked-in yearly expense of 0.5%. Capital gains for the car purchase of 25k would result in approximately $2,500 in taxes. Assuming we receive a penalty-free payoff loan, it would probably cost $750 in interest at 5% if we pay it off in a year. Should we take this opportunity to rebalance our accounts? Instead of paying off the loan, we would use the $1,500 a month to continue investing in low-cost index funds. Or do we take a loan and pay it off ASAP? Thanks for the t-shirt. I'm large and in charge. Hey, thanks for that, Eric, and thanks for your service, OG. What do you say to your uh, to your brother there? Yeah, I, I, I would wonder, firstly, if you have a car that's 10 years old, why it needs replacing, honestly. I mean, you can fix cars and make them last for a long time if you really want to. But if you're going to replace it, it really comes down to the lesser of the two evils, right? Do you want to pay taxes on the gains or do you want to pay interest to the bank? Which one do you hate more, taxes or banks? Those are your two choices. I don't particularly think that it matters one way or the other. You know, it's kind of six, one, half a dozen. But I like paying interest more than I like paying taxes in that order. So, um, I would probably do the loan, even if the interest rate kind of is crappy for a little bit and see about uh, seeing about aggressively paying it off. Alternatively, could you not just say, well, I know I know I'm going to have to do this in a little bit and I'm planning on paying the loan off in a year. Why don't you just save the money for a year and then buy it in cash? It's kind of the if you can make it a year, right? Like you go, I'm going to pay it off in a year anyway. So so why not just wait? This is pretty much the worst time imaginable to buy a new or used car with all the supply chain stuff and the economy and it just hasn't right sized yet to get back to normal. So, you know, if you can drag that out as long as possible, I think that's best just from that perspective. But if you do have some time and you're going to pay it off anyway, why not just save the money and then pay cash? Baller status. When Joe, you show my up. favorite part about that call was right at the beginning when he said, Joe and Doug, you guys can go take a nap. I'm not talking to you. That was your favorite part. I love it when they do that because then I just know, okay, great. Tuned out. <laughs> just curl up here for a minute. Power yep. down. Shut her down. Just shut her down for a hot minute. Yeah. Well, I like how OG found his friend. I mean. Yeah, there's 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 one of us somewhere. He just gets done alienating us and then he finds a new friend. So now watch out there, Eric, because uh, you're probably next. Next on the I list. I don't think so. 
He said chesty polar, which is there it is code word for awesome. There it is. Thanks for the question, Eric, and thanks again for your service. And if you've got a question for OG or you know, maybe me, maybe, maybe Doug, just getting crazy there, head to stackybenjamins.com slash voicemail and uh, like our Marine friend Eric, we will send you a Haven Life uh, Greatest Money Show on Earth circus t shirt. All right, that's going to do it for today. Man, we have a lot going on this week, and I'm super excited to tell you about it. Lots of ways to hang out with us on Thursday. If you're somebody who's working on your budget, join us for a YouTube Live or on the Fireside app if you want to ask your own questions. Take your budget out. Allison Baggerly, who has the great Instagram channel, podcast, and now a book about her inspired budget, she does a great job of breaking down budget. She's going to be with us at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific. That's the Fireside app or on YouTube, uh, our YouTube channel. By the way, you can find out all the different places where you can interface with us at our welcome guide, stackybenjamins.com slash welcome. And uh, you'll be able to just click links to sign up to follow us on YouTube, on Fireside. But then at five o'clock, we are talking to the makers of another fintech app called Curve, originally made in Great Britain, but this app's been taking the world by storm. It's a great way to manage your money. We're going to talk to the CEO on Thursday about Curve. That's 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific on Instagram. So lots happening on Thursday. Besides that, on Wednesday, a few times a year, we'd like to shine a spotlight on what our stackers in the community are up to. And man, OG, we got some cool people doing some really interesting stuff, plus a headline curated by a stacker and, of course, a Haven Lifeline involving another stacker. So great week here as we're back in the basement. All right, that's going to do it for today. Doug, you got it from here, man. What should we have learned today? So what should we have learned today? First, take some advice from Sean Hayes. Looking for your North Star with investing? Avoid shortcuts and you'll still make it wherever your dreams take you. And they certainly don't take you where Sean went. Second, take some advice from our headline. Looking to go into real estate? Always be professional with your tenants. Screen well and don't let referrals or friends get in the way, or you may see your big investment go sideways. But the big lesson? Speaking of game shows, I assure you, we took Bob Barker's advice. This show has been spayed and neutered. Good night! Thanks to Sean Hayes for joining us today. You'll find a link to his book, The Great Choice, in our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. This show is the property of SB Podcasts, LLC, copyright 2023, and is created by Joe Salcihai. Our producer is Karen Repine. The show is written by the brilliant Paulette Perhatch with help from me, Joe, and Doc G from the Earn and Invest podcast. You can hire Paulette as your very own writing coach. With her program, Your Personal Editor, you get 10 sessions one-on-one -on -one with Paulette to add power to your words. More information at yourpersonaleditor.com. Kevin Bailey helps us take a deeper dive into all the topics covered on each episode in our newsletter called The 201. You'll find the 411 on all things money at The 201. Just go to stackingbenjamins.com slash 201. Tina Eichenberg makes the video version of this show. Once we bottle up all this goodness, we ship it to our engineer, the amazing Steve Stewart. 
Steve helps the rest of our team sound nearly as good as I do right now. Want to chat with friends about the show later? Mom's friend Gertrude is our social media coordinator and the room mother in our Facebook group called The Basement. So say hello when you see us posting online. To join all the basement fun with other stackers, type stackingbenjamins.com slash basement. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and we'll see you next time back here at the Stacking Benjamin Show. Not only should you not take advice from these... Don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any financial decisions, speak with a real financial advisor. Steve, make sure you leave that pause in that Joe had when he was converting Eastern time to Pacific time so everybody can hear him subtracting three from 11. Welcome to the After Show. If you're new here, welcome. This is the part of the show that doesn't exist. I love it when people find us a few months later with the After Show. This is the part of the show, by the way, that if you're here for financial talk, we do that rarely, rarely here. What I do want to talk about, though, is, Doug, your trivia about game shows. Did you did you watch $10,000 Pyramid? Was that a game show you, you watched? When I was homesick when I was eight years old. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> never watched it as an adult? No, never have, I don't think. Is it still on? Yeah, they do. Uh, it's kind of like a summer program, I think, right? It's like it's on when like none of the network shows are on. They just Drew Carey it or somebody. How about Steve Harvey's success now, though, with uh, Match Game? Is it is it Match Game? Is that what he does? Or the one where they ding, the answer is? Family Feud. Family Steve Feud. Harvey's big on Family Feud. He might do others, but that's the one I know him from. No, he's done great with that. I saw a piece on YouTube recently, which are some of the funniest moments from uh, game shows. Because, of course, like our show, you got no idea what's coming up next. <laughs> let's 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 listen to a couple of these. During what months of pregnancy does a woman begin to look pregnant? September. <laughs> September. <laughs> Spe- specific. My- <laughs> no, the answer was June. It was June. Sorry. Name something you wouldn't try even once. Matthew. Sex on a train. <laughs> Sex that? on a train. <laughs> no. Funnily enough, our survey people didn't come up with that one. Something. To- <laughs> Shockingly. Nobody, nobody that they surveyed said sex on a train. One thing I wouldn't try once. Oh, Doug. <laughs> oh, no. Doug, why are you pointing at yourself? Oh, did you catch that? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. And, uh, and well, how about this one? 
burglar would not want to see when he breaks into a house. Rob. Naked grandma. Naked, huh? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Go the other way. Naked OG. Naked OG. Sometimes I think some of those answers like are staged just because they're so perfect. Like that's like who thinks of that top of your head? Naked grandma. <laughs> but it's hilarious. But you can tell these people he's just he's he's focused on hitting the button, right? And then they call on him and he's like, "Oh my god, I got to think of something quick." And it's September. Just like when you come to me for the Haven Lifeline thing. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I'm gonna say next time. What do you value most, naked grandma? Oh wait, <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, stackers, the show is over, but the party is just beginning here. You know why? Because it's Military Appreciation Month, and we are giving out shout-outs to all of our friends who have served in the military. And let's point uh, the finger right here at our good friend OG who spent time in the military. And of course, we know what a giver he is, even when he pretends like he's being uh, Mr. Surly. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members to help them reach their goals. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate, and you'll see all their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. They've got all kinds of resources on their site, like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and best careers for military spouses to support military families. So much going on. Just head over to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and take a look at all the Military Appreciation Month offers and their usual offers. Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.